When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Shared Values edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm here to talk with Anna Shemansky. Hello. It says here you're a senior strategy officer at a political risk startup. This is something I've not seen on my piece of paper before. It's been there for a while, yes. Oh my God, I never even noticed that. This is <laughs> this just goes to prove Wait, how Anna, much Wait, Anna, did I... you get a job? <laughs> <This> is... <laughs> it's, it's a job. It's a job. She's there, doing there air quotes. There, yeah, there are big air quotes. So. Yeah, um, okay, so anyway, welcome Anna, who's a... Well, she's senior, which is good. <laughs> and welcome to Jordan Wiseman, who's also um, senior. You're a senior something something at Slate. Yes, blah blah blah. And um, <laughs> and we are going to actually do something which we pride ourselves on generally not doing, which is talking about the stock market. We do it yeah. once in a while. We Every do it once in a while. And once in a while is more or less the correct frequency to check in on the stock market. Especially <laughs> yeah. the Dow. Yeah. It, um, it's like a, a, a pet you don't have to mind too much. Right. It's like a lizard of some sort yes. or something. If you know, There are certain radio shows which pride themselves on doing the numbers every single day and telling you what the stock market did this day compared to where it closed the last the previous day that is stupid don't are, do that are pay you, no attention to that do, do not subtweet you know i'm going to leave that alone <laughs> Just go ahead. um on the other hand like paying no attention to the stock market whatsoever is, is your if you do that then you're missing out on an important data point so every so often it's worth checking in on how it's doing. Mm-hmm. We are now six months into the Trump presidency. We are hitting all-time highs on it's, virtually every index. It's roaring. Yep. And, it's roaring. Um, and Trump, of course, is taking great credit for this, which I feel oh like is unbelievably stupid yes. because when it falls, you know, he's uh, going to have to own it. Also, during the campaign, he specifically called it a bubble. Did he? I forgot. Oh, oh, yes, yes, he did. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but now yep. he wants to keep the interest rates low. Exactly. So He's but, a low-interest rate kind of guy. But yeah. both Trump and Mnuchin, his Treasury Secretary, on the record saying, yes, the level of the stock market is basically... He called it a report card, Mnuchin. Report card. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he said, which was just, I couldn't Somebody else's that. report card. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, yeah. so, yeah, so right now, um, the, the stock market index that the press cares about more than any other is this ridiculous thing, which isn't even an index called the Dow. Okay, we've yes. talked about it. It is an index. It's just not an index in the way that you... It is a price-weighted like index, Yes, and that is stupid. Yeah, okay, it's yes. It's an we can average. Agree. It's an average, not an index. <laughs> it is. 
We all agree. We all agree. It's stupid. I think you're. Yes. We can. And it. Yes. And this is why when a stock like Boeing, which is expensive, has a movement, it is a disproportionate movement in the Dow. In any case, it doesn't really matter because whether you're looking at the Dow or whether you're looking at the S&P 500 or whether you're looking at the Russell 5000, everything is hitting all time highs. And so the question, Anna Shemansky, is does this mean that America is great again? (laughs) It's. No, I, I think this means that interest rates continue to be low. Yeah. And I, honestly, I, I think that, yes, it's also because earnings have been robust. And especially if you look at how multinationals are doing and companies that make a lot of revenues overseas are doing disproportionately well. And they also tend to have bigger weight in the different indices. So that's another uh, big part of this. So, you know, what's going on reminds me of is... um. Britain, right after Brexit, like right, right. and you are yeah. absolutely so, right. So, and, wait, so uh, and that is yeah. a fascinating, fascinating comparison because yeah. everyone expected the stock market to fall and it didn't. And the reason in both cases, yeah, of what the stock market has done in 2017 in the US and also what the stock market did after Brexit, you know, six months earlier in the UK, is in both cases, there's a very large component of currency weakness priced into yep. the stocks. It's yeah. A, yeah, and what I, I guess the key thing for listeners is the, the dollar's been crashing. Like yes. the dollar's at a 15-month low. Right mm-hmm. after Trump was elected, the dollar shot up because I think this is a case where the narrative was pretty clear, where people expected a lot of spending, interest rates to rise. Um, and when interest rates rise, the value of the dollar goes up because it attracts investment. Um that didn't really happen. And now people are seeing, oh, shit, Donald Trump can't pass Jack <laughs> through Congress. Right. And so they don't expect that kind of boost in spending. And they're not so sure the Fed's going to increase interest rates anymore because they've been a little bit more hesitant or they're not going to increase them at the pace, at least, that mm-hmm. they expected. So the dollar's been crashing. And then that leads to, like Felix was saying, currency weakness. And so you get this effect where, you know, foreign multinationals that make profits abroad look great because the dollar's weaker. OK, so can I things. just step in here and say this is making no sense to me? What? You can't say that the stock market it rises in November and December because the dollar is strong, and then it rises in. It didn't rise because, because the, the dollar, dollar was strong. Weak. No, no, no. It, no, it, it, the reason the stock market rose again. There are there are multiple reasons why the stock market rose. I, I actually think ultimately, the expectation of low rates is continuing to be yeah. all the the main story behind all of this. But yes, there was probably a little bit after Donald Trump where there was an expectation of lower taxes less regulation, um, increased deficit spending, which could, though, also in the short term lead to um, increased GDP growth. But I think ultimately it had to do with higher earnings. Again, it had to do. And then I think now that the expectation is that rates are going to stay lower for longer, that we're in this Goldilocks moment where we're growing fast enough that earnings are doing well, but we're not growing so fast that rates are going to increase yeah. at an increased pace. And when I'm saying that the dollar contributes, I was just sort of echoing your point, which is at this moment yes. now, you have weak the weak dollars contributing to those yeah. profits. Especially, so. I mean, you, you have companies that if potentially you're making a lot of your revenues in foreign currency and you're making a lot of your costs are potentially in dollars, then that relative value shift you're going to benefit from. I I also, the other thing about this that, and maybe Felix is going to roll his eyes after I make this point, but I'm going to risk it anyway. What I think we're seeing right now, which is kind of interesting, is that the U.S. economy, which I mean, 
job growth is going pretty well. GDP is okay. Um, the stock market is, of course, booming. Uh, the economy, finance, the markets can kind of soldier on in a country, even if like civil society is like rapidly deteriorating. <laughs> like that's like what well, well, again, that's like the fascinating thing to me about this is like shit's actually really, really bad politically, and yet. The country's kind of soldiering on, which I don't know if that's encouraging or discouraging. And certainly, if you look at the latest jobs report, we have unemployment at four point three percent now. Yeah. Things are things are looking up. And and the other thing is, to your point about, I mean, I wouldn't say that the dollar has been crashing. I, I think okay. the dollar is still plenty strong. I think it was extremely unsustainably strong. So it's coming to Earth. Year, is more like and it. it's kind of weakened back a bit to a strong but not crazy strong level. Um, certainly it has room to continue to weaken. Yes. Um, you know, by historical standards, it's looking very strong. But coming back to the original question, there are two metrics by which the, you know, market-based individuals like to judge or well, three metrics by which market-based individuals love love to judge how an economy is doing one is long-term interest rates one is the level of the stock market and one is the currency um right now if you look at those three metrics in the u.s um the stock market is doing great the currency as you say is not doing as well it's come down but it's still doing reasonably well it's still a reasonably strong currency right. and if you listen to any Treasury Secretary over the past 50 years, they'll say a strong dollar is in the national interest, even though they, no one really knows what that means. And um, and then the, the last one is long-term interest rates, which are now, what, like low twos, or like 2.2%, something like that. Again, that looks pretty healthy to me. Like, if you look at the report card across all three asset classes, U.S. is doing okay. I'm going to push back a little bit, though, <laughs> that I think, again, a lot of this right now is also you just have a lot of money chasing returns. Yeah. When rates are very low, rates on high grade bonds are also f fairly low. You then have more and more people going into equities and just and then we can get into this later when we talk about more about index funds, but just pushing up values to, in my mind, unsustainable levels and also paying more for risk at a period when the potential for return is the lowest it's ever been. Okay, I, I, would also, me... I would also add to that, the, the the reason for the low rates you have to keep in mind is that, you know, we can't seem to hit our inflation target. We can't, like, no matter what, we are undershooting inflation. And that speaks to some sort of weakness somewhere, whether it's just the fact that we actually are not close to full employment, even though we have a low unemployment rate, there are just too many people sitting on the sidelines of the job market. Um, whatever it is, it's just like, there. it seems like there is some fundamental fragility that's keeping so us So I want to yes. just end here because Anna's talked about low rates a long time. Like if we talk about, I want to just end here because Anna's talked about low rates a few times here. Um, when you're talking about stocks in particular, the discount rate you apply to stocks, which are permanent capital, is like a long-term discount rate, not an overnight discount rate. No, no. I mean, that's a, it's a very different if your terms of your like, if you're discounting like cash flows to value equities, that's different. But if you're Again, it's all relative. So if you have a lot of money going into bonds to keep those rates lower, that's then going to keep all, again, essentially rates lower. So I just want to come back to these low interest rates because Anna's been talking about low interest rates a lot. Um, are they really that low? I mean, I was saying that, you know, the long rates, are, what, 2.2-ish, short rates, you know, as set by the Fed are coming up. They are low by historical standards. But they are 
definitely higher than they were. I mean, how low? We've had essentially practically zero, almost negative interest rates for close to 10 years. This is not normal. And this keeps all rates low. Because if you're thinking of like, how do you figure out your cost of equity? Well, that's going to be based essentially on the risk-free rate and then you know, beta times your equity premium. So if the risk-free rate, your like tenure is low, that's going to keep all so rates I, I guess low. What, I guess what I'm asking you is, what do you consider to be low for the tenure? What do you consider to be a, a reasonable, normal, long-term rate for the tenure? And what would you consider to be high for the tenure? I mean, I, again, I would say like, essentially where we are right now, if you figure where inflation is, you have rates, again, very close to zero. That's so that's so quite real rates. So basically, real the, rates, yeah. the, the nominal rate, which we were saying was about 2.2 minus inflation, which is probably around what 1.7. So that's like about half a percent in terms of a real rate on the 10 year. You're saying that's in terms low. Of, yeah, I mean, in terms of exactly where the rates to be. I, I'm not, I don't know exactly what number you want to go for. But definitely, if you look historically, these rates are not normal. So but so at what point, I guess I'm asking, like, yeah. at what point would real rates need to go to for you to stop saying that? I mean, at least probably getting closer to, what, between 3 to 5%, like just something a little bit more normal. 3 to 5% real rates. Yes, I'm not going to come down an, an exact number of exactly where rates should be, but I do think that rates need to be probably a few hundred basis points higher to really reflect, I think I would argue, like actual risk. So instead of the 10-year treasury having an interest rate of 2%, it would be like 5 or 6%. Yeah. Okay. That's a rather terrifying prospect for anyone who owns bonds, but we will um, come to that probably at some point in the next decade or two. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. I do want to stick, though, with the stock market, because something really interesting happened this week. Um, we have talked over and over and over again on this show about the wonders of passive investing and how you shouldn't try to beat the market and it's a waste of time and you should just put your money in an index fund. But now, Anna, there seems to be a difference, at least going forwards, between what an index fund holds and what the market as a whole is. Yes. And also, I'm just going to come out here as someone who does not actually believe that passive investment is all that it's cracked up to be. And 
could potentially be a problem for the overall market, which we can get into. But yes, so S&P and Russell have both announced that most of their indexes will no longer include companies that have multiple share classes. And a multiple share class company, and we're used to this in the media world from places like News Corp and in the technology world from places like Google. Doesn't the New York Times have and multiple? The, and New York, yeah, most, media, most family-owned companies, or most companies where you have family control or founder yeah. control, but the founders have an economic interest of less than 50%, which is a lot of companies, yeah. you'll find these. Um, Facebook has it. Google has it. Um, you know, Viacom has it. You name it, they all have it. But now... Um, the indexes have come, the indexers, S&P most prominent among them, have come out and said, Buster, this is ridiculous. And if you come to market from this point forwards with multiple share classes where a handful of insiders control the company despite owning a minority of the stock, we are not going to include you in the index. Yeah, and I think we could ultimately call this like the snap decision. <laughs> this is... I'm not saying it's just about Snap, but clearly that's a big part of this. So what did Snap do? I mean, they issued shares that had zero voting rights. Yeah. And that is the the fact that investors went along with that shows you how degraded investment standards have become because it doesn't make any sense unless, frankly, you think you can just buy the share and flip it to an index fund. It doesn't make any sense why you are going to give money to a company and then have zero rights, that you are, in a sense, a partial owner, but have zero rights. Well, maybe it's just because shareholders don't feel that they have much in the way of voting power anyway, or that the way to affect change at a company is not necessarily through formal voting. As we saw at Uber, you can defenestrate a CEO even if he has control. Right. But that's also they weren't publicly traded. I mean, I think it's still the idea that if you're talking about a publicly traded company, the best way to affect change is going to be having some type of, you know, proxy battle or, you know, putting pressure on the owners, the shareholders, holding them accountable. So there are two different um, possible outcomes here as, you know, the parade of unicorns waits to go public and some of them at some point surely will. Um, one possible outcome is that these unicorns are going to take one look at this determination by S&P and say, okay, I mean, part of going public is to become part of the index. And so we are going to have to make sure we only have one share class where we go pub when we go public. The other possible outcome is that the unicorns are going to continue to have multiple share classes and there will be an increasing divergence between what the indexes contain and what the stock market as a whole contains. Right. And I think that is, well, that, that's important for a few reasons. A, because I think sometimes people think an index is the market and an index is almost never the market. <laughs> These are two different things. The S&P has always had restrictions on what it includes. My favorite example today is Tesla. Tesla is one of those stocks which has been going through the roof and one would think that if you had an S&P 500 index fund, given how much Tesla is worth, mm -hmm. then some maybe like one five hundredth or so of your index fund would be in Tesla and you would be getting the benefit of that share price appreciation. Not so. Why is it not? Tesla is not in the S&P 500 because it basically doesn't make money. Ah, so my question is, why is S&P... Why do they care so much? Why because is this, this their, is why a is big deal in terms though? of shareholders not having rights. Yes, it is. This is a big corporate governance issue. And if you start to have more and more companies 
issuing shares where you, you you don't have like that's that is I would argue leading to the road to disaster where founders and owners are not being held but accountable. Is that is that S and P's job really to be like the corporate governance enforcers? And the answer if is, investors aren't. Yeah, well, the answer is yes. Okay. I think the interesting and and it's interesting why the answer is yes. The answer is yes for two reasons. One is um, the rise of passive investing means that ultimately these decisions have to be made by the indexes because no one else is making them. Okay. Um, and as I say, like the indexes have always made these decisions. Making these decisions is nothing new. Um, yeah, S&P's put in these rules about profitability, which excluded Tesla. Those have been there for a while. The um, very, like, almost like papal secrecy surrounding like which companies wind up in the Dow yeah. um, is, you know, a very fraught and highly political decision. I remember when, you know, the Dow expanded to include companies which were listed on the NASDAQ and not on the NYSE. It was like a huge thing, right? Yeah. And so and and you know, one of the reasons that Apple finally split its shares was so that it could enter the Dow. There were all manner of um you know, decision-making about what goes into indexes and what doesn't. And the indexes have always made these decisions. And as Anna says, what we saw with Snap was not just, I mean, we saw with Google and C-Shares and with Under Armour earlier, companies which had gone public with a dual-class share system, then issuing a new class of non-voting shares with zero votes, which yeah. a lot of people were up in arms and about and said, you can't do that. But it was kind of ex post. It was too late to do anything about it at that point. Yeah. Snap actually went public with this. And everyone was like, this is just beyond the pale. We have to draw the line somewhere. And this is where we're drawing the line. Um, the interesting thing is going to be that and what I'm unclear about, Anna, maybe you can help clear this up, is will S&P um, evict existing no, companies. They're grandfathering. They, well, they're, it, I mean, they're grandfathered in if they have dual share classes right now. But if they create a new share class going forwards, is that enough to get kicked out? I haven't heard, but my guess is yes, especially because I know Russell has been allowing like companies that already have certain th- that are included but have those additional share classes. They within five years have to essentially change that in order to remain included. So my guess is. Again, I don't know exactly, but I think that they could potentially be kicked out. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So this is actually a perfect segue. Okay. Um, Here we go. This is is a great segue to um, the question of whether a public company can be a B corporation, can be a benefit corporation. Or should it just be a crunchy ass co-op and you know feed its soul that way? Anyway, so um, so yeah, we are we're going to spend a little bit of time here talking about one of my favorite, mo- most interesting companies, which is Etsy. Yes, um, Etsy is you know it's a genuine unicorn which went public on the stock market and it was valued at three billion dollars and um, 
I, I should imagine, given the demographics of podcasting, that many of our listeners have bought something <laughs> from Etsy at some point. Most I have likely. become. I never have. I have become something of an Etsy Ninja? aficionado. <laughs> um, you know, I have these. I have weird idiosyncrasies. Among them, a taste for one hundred percent cotton socks, and it turns out to be basically impossible to get 100% cotton socks in the United States. And there's this very friendly chap in Turkey called All Socks Seller in Turkey who sells 100% cotton socks. And that's where I get my socks now. Lovely. Yeah. And he's on Etsy. <laughs> lovely. I, I bought some <laughs> lovely mittens on Etsy. I, I feel like everything you buy on Etsy can be described as lovely. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, anyway, I, I'm, I'm an, I'm, I like Etsy. I've bought some wonderful needle, funny needlepoints on Etsy, which I love, and I have some bedside lights, which We're I love. We're just learning more and more. <laughs> <laughs> Etsy is a great company, but here's the thing about Etsy. It was always... Um, it was always founded with this idea that it was going to be a B corporation. Yeah. Um, uh, a, and a B Corp, a benefit corp, is one which doesn't only answer to its shareholders. The dual about, bottom line, right? Or as the many different, yeah, lines. as many different bottom lines as you want. Basically, it's accountable to its employees, to its various stakeholders, to its customers, to the planet. You know, it tries to. It tries <laughs> to Gaia. Gaia. Yeah. Gaia the both of us. Sorry. Anyway, go on, Felix. And and this is. Uh, and this actually works in in a, in a practical sense. There are lots of companies which do this. Patagonia has been around for a long time. Yeah, has been private companies that do this. Yes, right. And and, and Etsy was obviously before it went public, it was private, and it was a successful private B Corp. And what everyone always wanted to know was, okay, like if you own your own family-owned company or, you know, tightly held company, and you want to run it however you want to run it, you can run it any way you like. Does that work in the world of, you know, cutthroat public stocks? Yeah. And Etsy basically said, you know what, it can. And B-Lab, which is the official organization which basically says, yes, you qualify to be a B Corp or not, was also very keen on the idea that, yes, you can. And Etsy was the test case. And the way it works is, and there is actually a legal way of doing this and under Delaware law, is that you register under Delaware law as being a public benefit corporation. And what B-Lab says is that, you know, it has a whole bunch of criteria which you need to meet to be a B Corp. But you but register in Delaware so you don't have to pay taxes. Well, yeah. Well, no. You're, I mean, not actually, account you're accountable to Gaia, <laughs> but not to the IRS. No, no. This is not true at all. This is absolutely <laughs> oh, not true okay. because one of the big fights over Etsy was yeah. about how it pays taxes. Oh, right? interesting. And, and Etsy and, and B Lab had big fights with Etsy about saying like, you are doing a bunch of stuff which looks like tax avoidance to us and tax avoidance is not cool. And Etsy actually changed the way it paid taxes oh, wow. and is now paying more taxes. And it managed to raise its score from B Lab from 80, which was just the minimum needed to be a B Corp up to like 120 because it's, huh. because it's paying more taxes. Nice. Okay. So, um, so like taxes is definitely part of this. And there's, there's a bunch of different, you know, ingredients to this pie. But one of the, but the most crucial thing, once you're a public company, you do need to become a public benefit corporation. That's a necessary condition. And Etsy did not meet that necessary condition when it went public. And it was never entirely obvious when or whether it would become a public benefit corporation. And I kept on saying, yeah, kind of like, you know, we'd like to probably in the future, perhaps. And B-Lab, which really wants public B Corps out there 
you know, this is, it would be great if you could have public B Corps, um, kept on like pushing back the deadline and saying, yeah, 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 honestly, like we'll give you a little bit more time if you need it, but we, we want you to do, go there. And then in May, there was this boardroom coup. So Chad, Chad Dixon, who was the founder and CEO, got kicked out. He was the, you know, the big evangelist for benefit corporations. This new guy, Josh Silverman, comes in. It becomes more and more obvious that Etsy is not going to become a public benefit corporation. And guess what? The share price starts going up. Um, yep. This is the problem. Like, I feel like, so what happened? Well, there's SC, al- there, there's well, also talk yeah. about possibly selling the company, yeah, too. Yeah, there's talk about a number of things. Yeah. So, what, so basically what has happened since May yeah. is that all of the crunchiness of Etsy has pretty much gone out the window. It's yeah, they've still just, pretty crunchy. They've brushed away most of the granola. Like they've it's, brushed away a lot. They've they've managed to fire like twenty two percent of their staff. They um they have started talking very openly about selling to strategic acquirers. They have get this. They started making money. They just released second quarter earnings where they actually made a profit of eleven did. million dollars. Yeah. Um, and that sent their stock up another ten percent. Um, so the stock is probably a good like it's it's gone up from like 11 bucks to 15 bucks since the ceo came in in just a few months that's like 40 percent. that's impressive yeah um and and now they're looking and feeling like uh an a retailer like they used yeah. to hand crunch their own code or they were very proud which was a horrible idea they were very proud of the fact that all of their technology was developed in-house and every, and then the new ceo comes and goes like why are we developing all of this technology in-house we're selling knitted hats on the internet well, <laughs> we can just buy exactly. technology off the shelf which will work better well doesn't that come back to the whole song and dance you have to do in silicon valley which is you have to be a tech company you can't be a retailer which you is what they are a, you can't be a juice maker right. you have to be a yeah. you have to have some sort of technological component so I'm sure that helped them early on in terms of just, you know, attracting investment and then it outlived its usefulness, right? And also because they used to have higher revenue growth and now they don't. And I, I if you're looking at how you value a stock, you're going to be looking at future cash flows. And if you're looking at this type of company that has a niche market, I know that the, the you know, the new CEO, you know, said yesterday, like, you know, we're special, but the market for special is huge. And I'm like, no, the market for normal is huge. <laughs> The market for special, by definition, is small. And so, but the long tail, Anna. The yes. long tail. <laughs> Sorry. So, I I think that this company, I don't think their original stock price was ever fully justified because I don't see how you project that type of growth. They were spending like a tech company. They were, in some sense, at a certain point, being valued like a tech company, but they don't have the growth potential of a tech company. So, is this like? Is this the story of a failure of like the B Corp idea, or is this just the story of like the failure of old of Crunchy Etsy? Like, I, is it or is it both? I think it's both. Although I really don't think the B Corp model is ever going to work for publicly traded companies. I think B Corps for private companies is it's a nice marketing tool. I think that it's it's great to call attention to things. I think if you're talking about a publicly traded company, you are going to be less profitable almost certainly by doing this. Now. Does that mean that we shouldn't encourage companies to engage in more environmentally sustainable practices, better labor practices? Yes, that is the role of government. That is not the role of companies to, in some sense, have to govern like themselves. And the reality but is- But why can't they? I mean- Because you're has... not going to be more profitable. You're just not. No, but Anna, that's okay. This is, like, If I come out as a B Corp and I say I am not 
mainly interested in profits. I'm interested in many things of which profits are just one. And I go public on that understanding. And I'm going to say that at the margin, yes, I am going to care about making sure that all of my employees have health insurance rather than maximizing profits. I'm going to care about the planet rather than maximizing profits. That I can be a publicly traded company and you can discount my cash flows on the basis that I might be less profitable, but you can still trade my stock. There's no reason why I can't issue stock on that basis. Why does a public company always need to be maximizing profits? Because you are taking shareholder money. Yeah. And so I would argue that the role of a CEO, I, I think when people talk about shareholder value, it is often the term is misused. And actually, I think a lot of CEOs misuse it. And they think it's this idea of maximizing short term profits to try to get like a boost in your share price, which is not what shareholder value means. It means allocating capital efficiently with an eye towards long-term growth, long-term objectives, and long-term future cash flows. Because here's my argument. Like if you're like, what are the components of a DCF model? Your, Your future cash flows. And that is what is going into, in theory, what your share price should be. Now, if your future cash flows are, in theory, going to be getting smaller and smaller, how your value of your share price is going to be quite low. And also, you have taken money from the public. So now you, I think, do have a, in some sense, duty to give them a certain return. And if you want to engage in some of these practices, that's great. But then I don't know if you should be a public. Well, and, okay, and, and I, I just guess, deeply, deeply disagree yeah. with this. Because if I take money from the public while explicitly saying yeah. that, I am not going to be trying to maximize profits at every available expense. Um, And they give me money on those terms with their eyes open. Then that's a transaction between consenting adults. Totally. That's fine. And then the other reality is what's going to happen is then the value of your share price is going to decline and decline and decline. Okay. I guess I guess I kind of want to split that. Because then the value of your company is declining. And what's wrong with that? I want to... Because then you're going to go out of business. No, that doesn't (laughs) mean that at all. I want to split the baby here or attempt to. First off, I, I guess one of the issues here, again, is like you said, Felix, is Etsy failed to go public as a public benefit corporation. That is that is one of the issues is that they they didn't do this properly. But I wonder if there's sort of an inevitability to how this these kind of failures might unfold, right? Like if you do go public as a, a benefits corporation and you do your stock does trade at that discount, I have to think there will just be someone out there, some activist investors looking at your stock and licking their chops and saying, you know, if we could get them to be a little less good, we could make get them to make profits. If we well, could like buy their stock and just push them to be a little bit more ruthless capitalists they can event we we could make a mint here and i just i just wonder if that's sort of so the, this is this I, is my I, view i think yeah. that the um there is this obsession in the public stock markets with growth yeah if you look at the longest um lived companies in the world the ones which have lasted for hundreds of years or in some cases in japan and italy over a thousand years um all of them, without exception, are private. Everything from yeah. the you know uh, vineyards in Italy to hotels in Japan and Kikkoman soy sauce and all of these different companies. Yeah. And the reason that they that private companies can last so long, and 
do very well by their employees and by their owners, who are generally families, for many, many centuries. It's precisely that they don't feel the need to grow the whole time. And people like Anna come along at public and, and look at public stocks and say, well, where's your revenue growth? Why aren't, why aren't you growing? If you're not growing, then my yeah. DCF model doesn't work. And um, <laughs> Well, it quite literally doesn't. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and that doesn't mean that a company can't work without growing. Yeah. It, it really can work without growing, but the stock market... It doesn't like companies which don't grow. Well, exactly. And so that's why I wonder if this is sort of inevitable. It's like once you've decided to go public, even if you do have multiple bottom lines and you you try to set up this kind of legal apparatus to to protect the the heart and soul of your company, I, I wonder if just eventually some, you know, Carl Icahn's gonna come along essentially well, and turn you and, and you know, turn you evil. Two things. Yeah. I mean like Okay, A, I, I still am going to push back on the idea that you can just not grow as a company and you're still going to be long-term profitability in the modern market. I, I just think that that's very difficult. Unless you're a small company that doesn't have a lot of scale, then okay. Kickerman soy sauce. I bring it back up. It uh, doesn't grow a lot. Okay, this is... Kickerman's... <laughs> and they're everywhere. Yeah. They are everywhere. It's also one company and I have not looked at that company's financials. I so I can't make a that's, like, very intelligent... Because, because it's the financials not aren't there. Yes, company. I realize this. So... <laughs> But I would also like going back a little bit. This is also when we're talking about the standards that companies have to abide by. And again, I would argue that part of the reason that like, you are going to essentially be hampering yourself by being a B Corp on the public markets. Now, this is why I think that these standards are not things that should be set by this kind of somewhat arbitrary designation. These are issues that are like this is the role of government. The government is supposed to set regulations. That is what government is supposed to do. Companies are supposed to make money. That's what they're supposed to do. That's not true. Yes. My point is that when you say like, okay, we're going to have a certain amount of ethical companies and they're by being ethical going to probably be less profitable. We're not going to put pressure on government to set regulations so we have no, a more no level one's playing field. That, that's so, that's a straw man, Anna. No, 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 no one's no. saying that we're not putting pressure on government. But by, my point is by saying that we need to make like we should focus more on the B Corp model, which is essentially companies having to set these regulations for themselves, as opposed to trying to create a more level playing field. I, I just think that I don't see the one model ever working. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, we will leave it there um, and move on to a numbers round, why not? Yeah, sure. I've got a number. What's your number? 100,000, roughly. Yeah, a 100,000, roughly? A little bit under. That was how it was reported. Apparently, uh, Columbia Journalism School is starting oh. a data journalism degree, a master's in data journalism, and the tuition is going to be $100,000. And I just want to say, because I think there's an off chance. Kathy O'Neill used to obviously have, be part of Columbia, and she taught the sort of, I think, the predecessor to this program that they're now creating. I just want to say, in case anybody at Columbia Journalism School is uh, listening right now, that's fucking unconscionable. And it is absolutely grotesque that you are actually 
creating a $100,000 master's degrees for anybody going into journalism. You can just loan the, yeah. the, the poor data. I have worked with many great data journalists yeah. and they're awesome people. But I can tell you this is not a lucrative profession. No, now. it is not. And it's also a very it's a profession that's totally in flux. So, I mean, maybe you're teaching long term skills that are going to be useful in five to 10 years. Maybe you're not. I really don't know. But either way, it's just no, no. What are you? Where? How did this decision get made? <laughs> like, yes, so. it's just, it's just grotesque. And I, I said this on Twitter, and I'll say it again. I sincerely hope that CUNY, which I think is very good about charging very little for its grad programs, comes in, replicates your program, and charges maybe one fifth to one sixth of the price because that's what they already do with journalism. I agree. Degrees. The CUNY system is wonderful. Uh, my number is eighty-one million because in this wonderful frothy world of low discount rates and high asset prices. I feel like the the counter example is always a good one. Um, 81 million is the discount that Howard Lutnick got when he bought his new um, condo uh, in the Pierre Hotel. Actually, I think it's a co-op. Anyway, he bought a new apartment, um, the penthouse of the Pierre Hotel on Central Park with amazing views over Central Park. Um, he paid 44 million dollars for this penthouse which is undoubtedly a lot of money that is a lot of money but this is down 81 million dollars from the original 125 million dollar asking price I feel like this is a theme you have on some of these numbers. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> the high-end New York real estate market is, a, is... Yeah. Why did the asking price come down so much? Like, what was wrong with this penthouse? And the penthouse is a very nice penthouse. Did it need, like, a revamp, like a, uh, like a gut reno? But like... the ultra-luxury end of the market has yeah. been flooded. Interesting. And yet, it's going to be flooded more because they're rezoning large sections yes, of Midtown to, to build more of this shit. Although, I actually think that's not a bad idea. But we can we can go into that later. Yeah, more um, more density is good. Um, Anna, what's your number? So my number is twelve percent. I have a kind of complicated number. So I thought this was going to be a very simple, nice feminist story, um, but it turns out it's it's more complicated. So a few weeks ago, I'd mentioned that in India they've implemented this goods and services tax, which is a big deal. Now there's been a bit of a row because sanitary napkins are being taxed at twelve percent. And there are a lot of other pro- uh, products like condoms that are being taxed at lower rates. So people were saying this seemed like a simple story of, you know, women are being taxed for being women. Then I did a little bit more research into it. And it turns out that part of the reason for that is because a lot of the inputs that go into this product are being taxed at a higher rate. And because this is a goods and services tax, I won't go into all the details of it, although goods and services tax are actually fascinating. So I highly recommend looking into them. But suffice it to say, if you are a domestic manufacturer, you are going to be at a significant disadvantage to foreign manufacturers. So again, it's a, it's a much more complicated issue. And even though I still very much support the the women, I very much support them bringing um, interest to this issue. It's one of these instances where I think it's very important to look at all of the economics of any issue um, if you're trying to create change. On which note, I think we're going to bring this edition of Slate Money to a close. Let us know if you think that B Corps are wonderful things and that you will happily spend more to support them because they're crunchy and delicious. Um Email us on slatemoney at slate.com. Let us know if you um, made the Tata de Santiago. Yeah, I just want to say props to, I forget who it was who actually made the tort or made the Tarta and then emblazoned the Slate Money logo on the top of it, but you get 
like serious fan points for yep. that. Yep. It's um it's the cake which is um yeah I we, made its way around the world. You can still get the recipe by emailing us. I also threw it up on felix.kinja.com in I'm case you want to see it there. Also fairly sure that every one of our listeners has already emailed asking for the recipe. <laughs> you may have all done it. Our inbox has been flooded. It's amazing. It is just one like there have been points where my entire Gmail screen was just and one delete my account yeah okay i well, i don't think we were coming out as anti-vegan in no, that right i want to say like i was specifically saying alpha male vegans this <laughs> yeah. is a specific yeah. type, type of vegan of, yes my best friend this, is a vegan but this this show should be a safe space for all vegans no it's yes. no but so one listener got very upset and thought that we were coming as an, coming out as anti-vegans and asked to cancel their slate plus account and I, we do want to emphasize we are fine with veganism i like i said i tried it i know for, you you're fine with it i mean I, I, I'm, yeah, I know. I'm not coming out on yeah. this as, well, as a fine with vegan i think it is a it, i think it is a wonderful moral stand to take i am personally incapable of doing it <laughs> as i learned during my abortive effort at trying it for a month however we we don't want to chase you away. We 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 love what you're doing. Just for the world. Know, but but we're sad that you won't get to experience the deliciousness that is started the Santiago. <laughs> um in any case, once you want if you want something to listen to while eating your Tarte de Santiago, then listen to Hit Parade, which is hosted by Chris Melanfi. Um this is a new panoply podcast about what makes a song a smash. Um, Chris is a really interesting guy who probably has listened to more top hit singles than anyone else in the United States. And I'm really kind of excited that this has finally become a podcast of its own. So check that out wherever you get your podcasts or at slate.com slash hit parade. Um, many thanks to Dan Schrader. And I think that's it. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money.